Hello and welcome back. This is episode three of a kind of audio scrapbook that gathers together some bits of my PhD journey, looking at the role of music in social integration, particularly among people who have spent time in prison and people who have migrated. The wee morsels in this podcast are partly drawn from working on a variety of music projects in these contexts, and partly from what I've been reading, watching, listening to and thinking about in an effort to try and reach a bit of a deeper understanding of what's actually going on when we make music together. I'm really interested in the role of dialogue in all of this, and by this I mean partly what happens when we bring ideas from different disciplines alongside each other, but also what happens when we let people's different people's thoughts and ideas interact. So if there's anything in this that you have thoughts on, or a story about, or that you violently disagree with, then please get in touch. So we're going to start with a tune this time and the song that you're about to hear came out of a Vox songwriting session a couple of weeks ago in Pullman Prison. It was part of the Intune project which brings together families where one of the parents is serving a prison sentence. So Intune songwriting sessions are a bit different because they are quite focused on helping mums or dads who are in prison to write songs for their kids. And these might be nursery rhymes or pop songs or spoken word pieces and we do our best to help the guys find the sound that they want and the words that they want to express. This project isn't officially part of my PhD research, but it's really relevant to some of the stuff that I've been thinking about. So have a listen. This track is called Different View, and the guy that I co-wrote it with has also taken Different View as his artist name for the track. I remember you playing on dad's bike Sitting up front the way you like Helmet on, cheeky smell Through the visor telling dad to go faster I remember playing in the park with you The grass was green, the sky was blue Pushing you higher, higher on the swings Running about like you have wings I remember splashing at bath time and getting your jammies on for bedtime You annoying mummy But doing exactly what daddy says Ha 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 Just want to see you Growing up with a different view Not doing the same things I do I want something better for you Just want to see you Growing up with a different view Not doing the same things I do I want something better for you For real I get to see you some Sundays Cause they are the fun days Grandma Margaret brings you through With mummy and Kak and Aunt too You tell me what you've been doing That you've been behaving And mummy tells me you've not been behaving at all And when we talk on the phone Buttons click and I say hello And you say hey are we chicken? I love to hear your funny wee voice You tell me you've been playing with all your toys You're catching your dolls and your wee cousin River Learning so much, getting so clever For now I'll just have to love you over the phone But hopefully soon I'll be coming home I just, just want, want to see, see you Growing up with a different view Not doing the same things I've done I want something better for you 
just want to see you Growing up with a different view Not doing the same things I've done I want something better for you I imagine you when you're 23 You've got your own home and your own keys You've been through uni working hard Even got your own wee car And your best friends with your mummy and daddy But for now I'm just looking forward to the simple things I'll take you to nursery, we'll go swimming Go to the cinema on a Saturday Maybe even go to Spain on holiday The best thing will be the day when We wake up in the same house again Happy days for the both of us Just to find that unconditional love Just want to see you Growing up with a different view Not doing the same things I do I want something better for you I just want to see you Growing up with a different view Not doing Daisy, the same things I do I just I want, want you to grow up with a different view Just want to see you Growing up with a different view Not doing the same things I do I want something better for you Hope you enjoyed that. I'll come back to the song in a wee while, but first I want to tell you about some stuff that I've been learning about the voice. I've been reading some of the work of Italian feminist philosopher Adriana Cavarero, who talks a lot about the voice, particularly in her book, For More Than One Voice Towards a Philosophy of Vocal Expression. Um, And she says basically that each woman or man has an identity that consists in an embodied existing being, unique and unrepeatable. And she tells us that that unique physical body also gives each of us a distinct voice, which she sees as a marker of that uniqueness. Part of what she does in her work is to undermine the universal categories of philosophy, where the patriarchal tradition of Western philosophy refers to us all as man. And Cavarero pulls this apart like a ravenous wolf. She sees this universal, generalised category of man as a kind of monstrous creation that doesn't really resemble any living human, male or female. She talks about Aristotle and about how for him this universal man is the living being that owns language and how this excludes women from being able to recognise themselves in this figure. So Cavarero develops the concept of sexual difference as part of her approach. She draws on myths and literary representations of women to build this feminist philosophy of vocal expression. And in her view, women cannot get out of a system of thought simply by thinking of getting out of it, at least not while that thought of a way out is structured in the same categories from which it wants to escape. So for her, this patriarchal symbolic order is a kind of prison in itself. And her way of breaking out of it is the formation of provisional spaces, places of re-signification, where meanings and concepts and categories can be broken down and new relations can grow. 
She talks about how these spaces can foster an active politics based on the reciprocal communication of voices. And these provisional spaces call to mind the temporary autonomous zones that we talked about in the first podcast and the temporary communities that grow in the tiny transitory greenhouses of prison-based songwriting workshops. Cavarero's emphasis here is on the saying rather than the said. So not the disembodied words, but the very act of vocalisation, the relational potential that it holds, and thus the political potential that it holds. Anna Maria Ciccone, in her paper on theorising gender, culture and music, says this, If voice implies a mutual presence of speakers, the connection is one-to-one and takes its roots in the carnal body. It is a matter both of the uniqueness of a single being and of resonance from one's throat to the other's ear. So coming back to the songwriting workshop and the song that we started with, there's a lot to reflect on here. I'm particularly drawn to this mutual presence of speakers. It's such a simple idea, just two people in a room talking to each other. But there's much more to being really present, really listening, being truly open to connecting with another human. I'm conscious of this in the workshops we do because I'm aware of feeling kind of stressed. We write lyrics, write music and record the songs in three short days. And that's often quite a tall order, particularly when there are lots of participants to work with. It's really easy to feel stressed and distracted and inside your own head to be jumping five steps down the track to try and shape the emerging song into a finished product or plot out the progress that you need to make before lunchtime. And by doing that, I do a disservice to participants who are genuinely up for sharing with me in that moment something of what they've lived or what they care about or what they want to say. I also think that in these spaces there is potential for what Cavarero calls a politics of voices, deconstructing these toxic one-dimensional narratives and allowing fragments to emerge that come from these throats of flesh, these unique embodied beings. The participants we worked with on this occasion might easily be stereotyped at first glance. The fact that they're young, have done bad things, look a certain way, come from certain communities, talk a certain way, whatever. And after spending three days in this provisional space, in mutual presence, what we discovered destroyed all of these stereotypes as we knew and hoped it would. One simple observation speaks volumes here. That all the participants put everything they had into writing songs for their kids. One practically learned the guitar on the spot to be able to play it on the recording. And a couple of them decided to sing their own songs on the recordings. This brings us back to the uniqueness of each voice and how significant that is in this context. What Mary Ann Smart calls the power of voice as the most complete embodiment of the uniqueness of the individual. I wrote another song um, with one participant and he was really nervous and unsure about whether to sing on it himself or not. And then in this lovely moment of fist-clenching resolve, he smiled and he said, fuck it, I'll do it, it's for my son. Similarly, on the song that we heard, the participant I wrote it with, who decided on the artist name Different View, he was sure from the outset that he wanted it to be his voice on the recording. This is political. Paying attention to these voices is surely something along the lines of what Cavarero was talking about in her politics of voices. 
Cavalier goes on to say that each human being has, in the uniqueness of his or her voice, a sonic self-revelation that exceeds the linguistic register of meaning. So in other words, the domain of the voice goes beyond the domain of the word that is spoken. And in these songs that dads in prison write for their kids and record in their own voices, maybe we can see why. The words they have crafted have meaning in themselves, of course they do. But when they're spoken or sung by the dads, despite the vulnerability and sometimes overwhelming embarrassment of this moment, the meaning of that gift to their family is really significant. In the last podcast, I mentioned a project called Behind the Wire, an oral history project in Australia that works with people who have experience of immigration detention. There's a lot about voice in their work. For example, the way that they actively work to put voices and stories in their political and historical contexts. And they acknowledge that some voices need to speak their words, even if none of the listeners speak the same language. They recognise and honour the significance of having your voice heard, even if nobody understands the words that are spoken. And maybe this is because, in the words of Cavarero again, the voice does not engage in masquerade. Indeed, it strips away masks from the word. The word can say anything and its opposite. No matter what it says, the voice communicates first and always one thing, the uniqueness of she or he who emits it. All of this said, I don't think Cavarero is seeking to totally undermine the value of the word. Marianne Smart crystallises the final section of For More Than One Voice as proposing a reintegration of word and voice and to imagine what a politicised, truly relational voice might sound like. I want to go back to the idea of mutual presence that came up earlier because that chimes with some ideas that I heard in a talk by Tim Ingold who is Professor of Social Anthropology at Aberdeen University. I wasn't actually at the talk, but it's available on SoundCloud um, through the CCA. And I'd definitely recommend it for an interesting listen. He unpacks some approaches and methods in the social sciences and talks about the kind of callous or two-faced nature of some forms of research. He talks about when we talk to people not to learn from what they have to say about the world, but to uncover what that has to say about them. He talks about what data actually is that the word comes from the Latin dare, to give. And that if we see it as a gift, then it helps us to realise that data, particularly about people, is not something to be mined or extracted in an exploitative way, but something we receive as a gift when we enter into a two-way correspondence with someone else, a kind of mutual responsiveness. He goes on to lay out some similarities between art and anthropology. He talks about the role of art as bringing things into our presence so we attend to them. And he sees a similar role for anthropology, not explaining things or interpreting things, but paying attention to them. In the same way that a singer in a choir listens and responds to those round about, or an ornithologist focuses their visual attention on the movement of birds. He talks about how when we listen to something we might feel as though our ears are stretching towards the source of the sound and that the Latin word attendere actually means to stretch towards. He talks about how this affective joining or ongoing attentive engagement 
can be transformative for all involved. Tim Ingold has written extensively, and although he's in social anthropology, some of his work sits in the in-between spaces between anthropology, art, archaeology and architecture. One of his books is called Lines, where he imagines a world where everyone and everything consists of interwoven and interconnected lines. He notes that walking, storytelling, weaving, observing, singing, drawing and writing all proceed along lines. And the first chapter in the book is about language, music and notation. <clears throat> it opens with a quote from Or Pingalik, who is an elder of the Netsilik Inuit, which says this. Songs are thoughts which are sung out with the breath when people let themselves be moved by a great force. When the words that we need shoot up of themselves, we have a new song. Where Cavarero talks about reintegration of word and voice, I wonder if this is a good example of this. It's a very corporeal description that weaves breath and emotion and thought together into song, where the words we need almost come from some external source. It's a description rooted in a moment in time, and it definitely carries something about the importance of the saying rather than the said. In some senses, Ingold's writing in this chapter digs around in similar territory to Cavarero's work. While he doesn't place the same emphasis on voice, he does explore the distinction between speech and song, or between language and music. He talks about how, when we listen to music, we are paying attention to the sound itself and the feeling it evokes in us. But when we listen to the spoken word, it's neither the sound nor the feeling that we attend to but the meanings that lie behind the sounds. So, he says, whereas sound is of the essence of music, language is mute. He talks about Ferdinand de Saussure, one of the founding figures of modern linguistics, and about how, for him, words do not exist in their sounding, and so sound cannot belong to language. Rather, language is made up of what Saussure calls images of sound. Ingold goes on to say that one implication of this is that insofar as words are incorporated into music, as in song, they cease to be words at all. Or as Suzanne Langer puts it, music swallows words. Ingold also quotes Japanese composer Toru Takemitsu, who says, When sounds are possessed by ideas instead of having their own identity, music suffers. So there is lots to think about here, and I think this could prove quite a rich theme to explore in terms of where music intersects with language and translation here. Maybe we're more inclined to listen to words we don't understand in song than in speech or in the written word. Maybe in making music with people who have a different mother tongue or even a different accent that we find hard to understand, we can let their voices express that unique identity without having to strive for the content to be made up of words that are universally or even widely comprehensible. Drawing on the approach of Behind the Wire, which highlights the value of letting people tell their stories even if nobody understands the words, maybe there's something about voice and song in this context that have a therapeutic effect for the owner of the voice and might be able to communicate more than we think to an attentive listener. Lots to think about.
I'd like to move on to tell you a bit about a paper I read recently called Towards an Aesthetics of Care. It's by James Thompson, who is Professor of Applied and Social Theatre at the University of Manchester. The whole article is based on the very personal experience of caring for and observing the medical care for a friend and colleague from the Democratic Republic of Congo who had survived a violent attack and came to live with Professor Thompson in Manchester in order to be able to access surgery and physiotherapy and a safe place to recuperate. At the outset of the article, Thompson suggests that if I failed in this call to take care of a colleague, then the ethics and the aesthetics of my professional work was worth very little. He makes the suggestion that professional life and personal life cannot be sustained ethically as two separate spheres. And he draws on Bourriot to suggest that the intimate and interpersonal, rather than be ignored, should be acknowledged as an important source of our politics. This brought back a memory for me from my early days of working for a family support charity, where part of my work involved getting to know parents of young children who were seeking asylum here and most of whom had experienced trauma. I was feeling the weight of the stories that I was hearing through encounters in people's homes. And I was feeling the helplessness of not being able to change these family situations and feeling ashamed of the brutal ways that the UK Home Office treats people who are looking for safety for their families. In the context of all these feelings, I went to an older, more experienced colleague for advice. Um, I was told that I couldn't let it get to me. I had to maintain appropriate professional boundaries. And once I had been in the job long enough, I would toughen up. I wish I'd had this article to read at that time. Anyway, the article deals first with the ethics of care, noting how both institutional and private practices of care tend to be marginalised, gendered and devalued. Thompson calls for an affective solidarity, a felt sense of justice. He traces the history of the study of care ethics, noting how Earlier schools of thought had drawn clear lines between the supposedly masculine realm of justice and the realm of care, which was characterised as feminine. And noting also how these have become much more integrated now. He tells us how care ethics deliberately refuses a boundary between private realm and public. And he quotes Virginia Held to cite the values of trust, solidarity, mutual concern and empathetic responsiveness as the source of ethical behaviour between groups. Reading this takes me to a much more recent memory from last week in prison. We were walking along a corridor, or the route as it's known, and ahead of us I saw a young prisoner who was carrying a bunch of laminated papers, maybe certificates of some kind, and he dropped them. Now, if you saw someone in the streets drop what they were carrying, you'd see people bend down to help. But the prison staff around stood with their arms crossed, waiting for the guy to pick up all the bits of paper. And it took a painfully long time as he scrabbled around. And long after the moment was past, it stuck in my mind. Yes, it is true that people in prison have generally broken a social contract 
and not shown those values of trust, solidarity, mutual concern and empathetic responsiveness. But I think there's a pretty slim chance that anyone can find their way towards those values without role models. Back to Thompson. He goes on in his paper to talk about paying attention to the face of the other, quoting Levinas. And perhaps we can extend this to put some emphasis on the voice of the other as well. He talks about the processes whereby we build these connections with others. And he draws on Noddings and Toronto to suggest that engrossment and attentiveness are the foundations that the activity of caring develops from. Ultimately, he suggests, drawing on Amin, that the development of care ethics is a plea for a better and more caring world and a direct commentary on what might be called an ethic of neglect, which has resulted in a careless society, one in which there is a lack of solidarity between individuals, where we just stand and watch another person who's dropped a pile of papers right at our feet. This calls to mind the work of Sir Harry Burns, who was formerly Chief Medical Officer for Scotland and is now Professor of Global Public Health at Strathclyde. He's a massively inspiring, world-changing figure. And he talks a lot about the evidence that adversity in the early years of life can have massive implications in biological, behavioural and social terms in later life. He tells a story about how during his time as Chief Medical Officer for Scotland, he spoke in very frank terms to the Scottish Government about how the approach needed to improve a vast swathe of Scotland's social problems boils down to love and compassion. Probably not very common words to crop up in social policy documents and strategies, but words that he is able to back up with a wealth of medical evidence. He talks, for example, about the molecular biology of a hug and exactly how a shortage of care and affection in childhood can stunt emotional development to an extent that leads to a multitude of social problems down the line. And it's no surprise that in our prison population we see a strong thread of adverse childhood experiences. Back to James Thompson again, because his discussion of the ethics of care lays the foundation for an exploration of the aesthetics of care. And this is where it gets really interesting. He explains this as being about a set of values realised in a relational process that emphasise engagements between individuals or groups over time. It is one that might consist of small creative encounters or large-scale exhibitions, but it is always one that notices interhuman relations in both the creation and the display of art projects. By extension, then, we might talk about attentiveness to the way we relate to one another in the writing, the recording, the airplay and the performance of songs. Thompson quotes Robinson in describing the aesthetics of care as involving not only learning how to be attentive and patient, how to listen and respond, but also how to rethink our own attitudes about difference and exclusion. I'm aware that I'm quoting large chunks of this paper, but I, I think there's so much that's relevant to creative and participatory arts projects that we can learn from. And the phrase, I think, that sums up some of the attentiveness, creativity and dialogue involved in this process is crafted caring. Crafted caring. So, I didn't step forward and help the man that dropped his certificates that day. Maybe next time I might be more attentive and more bold. <laughs> <laughs>
But on reflection, I think that as a team, we did bring some healthy disruption along the route in that prison. Over the three days of the project, when walking back and forward along the route each day, we encountered a few prisoners that we knew from previous projects, and we were pleased to see them. Where we could, we stopped for a greeting, a handshake, a chat, even just a wave, humming a tune or some quick-fire banter. And maybe this was a tiny bit of crafted caring, a hint of the unconditional positive regard that we talked about in the last podcast, a moment of human connection in a pretty dehumanising context. Maybe this was even a fleeting suggestion of the, the provisional spaces that Cavarero talks about, where voices make connections, break down categories and build relations. As ever, there is much more that I would like to talk about, but I'm going to save some thoughts for next time. This episode has been in some ways quite heavily focused on the criminal justice element of my research, because that's the context that I've spent the most time in recently. But the next episode will have a bit more reflection on issues around migration and music, and will hopefully also introduce some other voices. I'm going to leave you with a song that I wrote recently that's a bit more upbeat than my usual. As part of the collaborative action research on the Distant Voices project, we are reflecting together on the new Distant Voices album, which is coming out in May, and which brings together an astounding array of songs written in criminal justice contexts with some of Scotland's finest songwriters. It's already had some airplay, uh, so you might have heard a stray track here or there, but do get a hold of the album when it comes out. It is a beauty. Anyway, as a member of the core group of the research project, I've been asked to reflect on and respond to one of the album songs in my own way. The album song that I chose to respond to is called Rendezvous with Warpaint, and it's about nights out at the Magnum Leisure Centre in Irvine, where Fruzy, who co-wrote the song along with Mark Rooney from Pronto Mama, had spent a lot of happy teenage times. When he found out that the Magnum was going to be demolished during his time in prison, he wanted to write it a love letter. It's a brilliant song. My song written in response to it is based on my happy teenage times at a similar institution of bright lights, fried food, vending machines and teenage heartbreak, the time capsule in Coatbridge. It draws on lots of other things, uh, not just teenage fancyings and falling outs, uh, but also the decay and mortality of buildings, things not living up to expectations, architecture and community, mental health struggles, swimming, dreams of drowning, systems that chew you up and spit you out. There are a lot of random thoughts in there. There's also a tiny wee nod to a great book that I've been reading called The Battle for Home by Marwa Al-Sabuni. She is a Syrian architect based in Homs who shares her personal story interwoven with her reflections on how the built environment has contributed to the ongoing conflict in Syria. I do wonder what insights she might have about the Magnum Leisure Centre and the time capsule. Anyway, uh, the song is called Lung Stretch, and it's very much of an unfinished thing. But like Anne Lamott says, perfectionism is the voice of the oppressor, the enemy of the people. Ha <laughs> ha. See you next time. <clears throat> Whizzing round like a propeller, you all voodoo and amber. I'm watching in a fake label jumper. 
Her journey was interstellar With music as her shelter Every orbit you would hold her Young and enthusiastic Hurling through bright colored plastic All your talk of control Must have been sarcastic Who knew bricks and mortar Could lead to all our fear If you were a sound you'd be a deep breath If I do inhale you'd be a stretch If you were a choice you'd be a nightmare A nightmare The slow decay no fireworks Watched by gulls and skylarks Silvery semaphore from a sinking landmark Not really surprising We never could share a horizon Face to face You're a mix of joy and poison If you were a sound you'd be a deep breath If I do inhale you'd be a long stretch If you were a choice you'd be a nightmare A nightmare Circles on the ice were getting nowhere These lunar cycles swallow the light And in the blue, in the deep blue It's all muscle memory The way I came back to me It's all muscle memory The way I came back to me It's all muscle memory The way I came back to me sound you'd be a deep breath if i do inhale you'd be a long stretch if you were a choice you'd be a nightmare a nightmare if you were a sound you'd be a deep breath if i do inhale you'd be a long stretch